You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Boy, howdy. He got that right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, on New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week. I'm Brad, whether I like it or not, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Boy, Oh Boy, Desi Doyen. This is an ugly day. Yeah. Ugly day. Sorry to say. In every respect. I have felt dirty, frankly, <laughs> all day long today just reading the yeah. news. Really. Yeah. Uh, as, among other things, Donald Trump begins to warm up his pardoning muscles. That would be President Trump, who claims to be against things like Im- the improper use of classified material by government officials. So much so that he spent years calling for locking up Hillary Clinton, despite the lack of actual prosecutable evidence that she did any such thing. Trump also claims that he really, really hates leakers. So with all of that in mind, on Friday, he pardoned a guy who obstructed justice by lying to the FBI about leaking classified information to the media. And what that guy leaked was the identity of a deeply covert CIA operative. Donald Trump has issued a full pardon to Scooter Libby, a former top aide of Vice President Dick Cheney. Libby is Cheney's former chief of staff. He was convicted of lying to federal investigators and obstruction of justice. Oh, that's something that Donald Trump may be familiar with. Following the 2003 leak of the identity of CIA operative Valerie Plame, President George W. Bush later commuted Libby's 30-month prison sentence, but much to the eternal rage of Dick Cheney, Bush did not issue a pardon to to Libby, uh, despite intense pressure from his vice president. Trump says in his statement, with the pardon on Friday that he does not know Libby, but, quote, for years I have heard 
that he has been treated unfairly. Hopefully, this pardon will help rectify a very sad portion of his life. Previously, uh, during his term, Trump has also pardoned controversial former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was found guilty of criminal contempt. So you can see with both of these pardons how Donald J. Trump is when it comes to the rule of law and things like law and order, at least when it's actually applied to, you know, wealthy white guys, wealthy white Republican guys who support him. Former George W. Bush administration official, now ABC News political analyst uh, who knew Scooter Libby very well, that would be Matthew Dowd, Dowd uh, tweeted in response to the pardon on Friday, quote, this pardon of Scooter Libby is simply outrageous. I worked for President Bush from 1999 to 2005, and Scooter is a felon whom President Bush would not even pardon. He was convicted of obstruction of justice, lying, and perjury. Dowd said this is a dark day for the rule of law in America. Valerie Plame, for her part, whose identity was blown by Libby and others in an attempt to discredit her husband, who called out George W. Bush for mis- that would be Joe Wilson, who called out uh, George W. Bush for misleading about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. Plame responded on MSNBC today to say that Libby's pardon sends the message, quote, that you can commit crimes against national security and you will be pardoned. There is no mistake, I would say, in that message from Donald Trump. Uh, he also made it loud and clear on Twitter, as he does in uh, in what is one of the ugliest political days on Twitter and really everywhere else in this country that I think I may have ever seen, at least in many years, to give you a sense of just how ugly it is and what I hope to try and largely avoid on today's show uh, or at least reach out above and beyond it with my guest momentarily since since I can I, I can let everyone else respond to all of the political ugliness today I, I suspect and I'm sure we'll have no choice but to get back to it all very soon anyway but to give you an idea of how ugly it is Merriam-Webster dictionary says it's seen a 60,000 percent spike in searches for the definition of the word quote slime ball that after Donald Trump used that word in a tweet to disparage former FBI director James Comey. Shortly after 8 a.m. on Friday, the president tweeted, James Comey is a proven leaker and liar, in all caps. He leaked, in all caps, classified information for which he should be prosecuted. He lied to Congress under oath, in all caps, he is a weak and untruthful slime ball who was at at uh, who was, as time has proven, a terrible director of the FBI. His handling of the crooked Hillary Clinton case and the events surrounding it will go down as one of the worst botch jobs of history. It was my great honor to fire James Comey. Now, never mind, I suppose, that Scooter Libby actually leaked the very, very classified information to the media uh, on multiple occasions of the identity of a covert CIA agent who had for years fought against the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction 
Uh, Never mind that Libby was convicted for lying, yes, under oath to the FBI, the very things that Donald Trump on the same day slams Comey for, even though none of it appears to be true in the sense of uh, in the case of Comey. The president of the United States took to Twitter to attempt to tar a long serving Republican FBI director as a, quote, slime ball. Yeah, I told you it was an ugly day. Uh, Trump's tweets were in reaction to excerpts from Comey's memoir, A Higher Loyalty, in which Comey compares Trump to a mob boss and slams the, quote, forest fire that is the Trump presidency. Less than three hours later, Merriam-Webster reported the spike in uh, lookups of the definition of the word slimeball, which, by the way, uh, they define as, quote, a morally repulsive or odious person. I will leave it to you today to decide uh, who that definition best applies to. But as I say, in an attempt to reach above and beyond that ugliness today, because I just really hate it, in hopes of giving something uh, progressives and Democrats and, frankly, all Americans really uh, can look forward to above and beyond this mess, this swamp that this country is now in. In the year and a half since President Donald Trump's victory, progressives have sprung into action at the state level, scoring a string of special election victories and triggering widespread expectations of a blue wave or even a tsunami in the 2018 midterms, according to Allegra Kirkland over at TPM. In some blue pockets of the country, we're already seeing what that wave could yield. In some blue pockets of the country, we are already seeing what that wave could yield. She notes Washington state, for example, has passed some 300 bills since securing full Democratic control of the state legislature in a special election last November. Democratic Governor Jay Inslee has signed many of those uh, those bills into law, including a voting rights package that includes same-day registration and pre-registration for teenagers. Meanwhile, in New Jersey, which attained trifecta Democratic control of the state house and the governor's mansion after Democrat Phil Murphy succeeded Republican Chris Christie, they are also poised to enact the nation's most sweeping equal pay legislation. Jessica Post, executive director of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, called Washington State's 60-day session historically incredible and vowed the Democrats would continue to, quote, raise hell on voting rights and other core progressive issues wherever possible. She says what happened in Washington state showed that uh, what we what can happen when we flip a Democratic chamber. They went into session in 2018, banning bump stocks, uh, banning LGBT conversion therapy and much more. She says there's so much progress that can be made in the states when you flip these chambers and fast still. Republicans maintain an overwhelming advantage at the state level in many states. They have trifecta control themselves in 26 states compared to just eight for Democrats, with significant supermajorities in many of those legislatures. The focus for most national progressive groups this year is simply chipping away at those numbers and where they can, flipping chambers or governorships to break the GOP's hold. 
But with undeniable momentum seemingly on the side of Democrats this year as we barrel toward the crucial 2018, uh, 2018 midterm elections, with the possibilities of flipping both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate to Democratic control before the 2020 presidential race beyond that, some Democrats are now dreaming much bigger than simply clawing back majorities in states wherever they can. Some are finally beginning to discuss what to do with those majorities uh, at both the state and national level if they can manage to win them back. In an excerpt published by The Guardian recently from a new book by David Ferris, a progressive political science professor and columnist, Ferris writes, Donald Trump wasn't elected because Democrats lost a policy fight in 2016. What Democrats did was lose a procedural fight that has been going on since the early 1990s, when Republicans began waging a relentless, brutal and completely one-sided war, systematically using their lawmaking power to disadvantage their adversaries in elections and political mobilization. Gerrymandering, the Citizens United atrocity that declared money is speech, blocking U.S. Supreme Court nominations and obstructing legislation are just some of the Republican Party's tactics, Ferris writes. Depraved, racist voter ID laws that obviously target people who are likely to vote Democratic and the cruel way that many states prevent current or former felons from voting are others. Indeed, he says, one has to grudgingly respect the single-mindedness with which the Republican Party has pursued its advantage in the constitutionally defined electoral college, even as we condemn the damage it has wreaked on our democracy. Democrats, Ferris writes, now are in the, the minority in Congress, and they must pay homage to their Republican overlords and use what little power they have to slow down legislation— turn the public against the Republican Congress, and then retake total power in 2018 and 2020. Then, he writes, what they must do with that power is to fundamentally alter key aspects of our political system that we take for granted, but that are not, contrary to popular belief, actually outlined in the U.S. Constitution. Ferris goes on to detail how the U.S. Constitution's lack of specificity in many areas opens up key opportunities for we the people and our lawmaker representatives to fill in those gaps, which Republicans have been doing quite aggressively for some time, but which Democrats have been far more timid in attempting to do. Those days should soon be over, argues Ferris, who outlines a number of pretty radical structural ideas that he says Democrats should embrace just as soon as they can wrest back control of the White House and both chambers of Congress. Here to discuss some of those radical ideas is David Ferris, whose book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, is on sale this week, perhaps right next to James Comey's new book, if you're planning to head to a bookstore or order online anytime soon. David Ferris is a contributor at The Week. He's associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He's also a frequent uh, guest right here on the broadcast. Oh, David Ferris, welcome back, sir. 
Great to be back, Brad. Congratulations first on the new book and maybe on the timing. It sounds like a fine companion book to Comey's. Uh, you know, get get angry about what's going on and, and then read your book to find out what to do about it. Well, the president is doing all my publicity for me. You know, so. <laughs> yes, and giving everyone, I guess, a reason to, uh, well, you say to fight dirty. And we'll, we'll uh, come back, we'll talk about some of the specific structural ideas that you, uh, you outline in this excerpt at uh, The Guardian. But, but is it really fighting dirty, you know, as you know, I consider Republicans who are willing to violate the law to do whatever they can to win elections as fighting dirty? Are you actually calling for Democrats to fight on that level in this book? For the most part, no. I mean, most of the ideas in this book I consider a process of rectifying existing injustices mm-hmm. in our electoral system and our political processes, mm-hmm. um, and then responding in kind to some of these Republican escalations um, to, I think, partly to, to convince the Republican Party that some of the things that they're doing are, are deeply destructive and that they will lead to retaliation, right? I think that they're assuming um, things like uh, holding the Supreme Court seat open for Neil Gorsuch um, will not get a reply from the adversary, from the opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so part of the purpose of the book um, is really to, to outline a, a series of ideas, I think, that are, that are actually the right thing to do. Like, I don't consider them to be fighting dirty. I think it will be perceived as fighting dirty. <laughs> Right, um, but but I actually really believe in all of these ideas as, as sort of improving the long term the long term performance of our democracy overall. And and before we discuss some of those, they are very radical progressive ideas. Whether they are dirty or not, uh, they are they're certainly very radical. But you describe in the book how how these are the sort of things that counter the very radical things that Republicans have been doing at least since the rise of uh, of Newt Gingrich. Uh, in the 90s in response to Bill Clinton. How, how do you see what they did, what the Republicans sort of did here, as a roadmap of sorts for what Democrats ought to be doing now if, and that remains a big if, David, uh, but if they can uh, regain power in both houses of Congress and the White House? Well, I think what, what Republicans have often done is they've, they've, look at, they've looked at the, the political framework, the political order, and they've asked a question, which is like, how far can we push this before we run into the boundaries of legality? Mm-hmm. And they've used instances where, where either the Constitution is very vague or state laws are very vague to press their advantage very ruthlessly when they have the opportunity. You know, the, the best example of this, of course, is the Merrick Garland fiasco, um, because, you know, the Constitution requires the Senate's advice and consent um, for these appointments. But that's actually, that's all it says, right? It doesn't, it doesn't say you need a hearing. It doesn't say... Uh, under what time frame those, uh, those, that, that consent needs to be given. Mm-hmm. Right? So Republicans were, were actually right um, when they said that the Constitution does not require them to confirm Merrick Garland to the court. Um, what, they, what they did instead was they violated a, a longstanding informal understanding between the parties that the president gets to fill a Supreme Court seat when that seat opens up. You know? um, and because the Supreme Court is, a, is kind of a lottery, um, Jimmy Carter didn't get to, to fill any seats on the Supreme Court. Reagan got three, and Obama should have gotten three, based on the existing understandings between the party. So between the parties, you know. So, so they looked at the situation. They said, "Look, is it illegal for us to stonewall this guy? Uh, it's not. So we're going to do that." You know. Um, and so, in case after case, they've they've used the the sort of elasticity of the Constitution to press their advantage um, as long as those things don't run afoul of actual laws or, or the constitutional order itself. And they do that at the at the federal level. They do that at the state level uh, in just ways Absolutely. that I do not see, you know, Democrats doing. And by the way, where they can't do it, 
at, at the legislative level, they have been uh, a pretty serious effort now for some time, uh, as I understand, backed by the Koch brothers to actually use the Constitution itself to call for a constitutional amend, uh, convention to radically rewrite the Constitution itself. And whether they can do that or not, you know, we'll see. But. That's the way Republicans think. They think big and broad and long term. And I don't see Democrats really thinking that way at all. And your book sort of calls for them to begin doing exactly that. Right. I mean, I think the Democrats have to take some of these procedural issues and these electoral issues much more seriously. I think they need to take them as seriously as they take their policy proposals and mm-hmm. their sort of inter-party battles over what the party stance should be on certain issues. Because the reality is, in national politics, um, in every election for the last 20 years, the Democrats have been fighting at a really significant disadvantage um, due to things like uh, felony disenfranchisement laws, like gerrymandering, mm-hmm. like the voter ID laws. And if they don't seriously rethink some of these things, they may come back into power in 2020, but they're going to kick it right back in 2022 or 2024 or 2026. Mm-hmm. Because these long-term structural bar- barriers to, to progressive power, um, I think they're very kind of poorly understood brought by the broader public. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in all cases, they're, uh, they're sort of an, an affront to the spirit of small-D democracy as it should be practiced and as it is practiced in most of the rest of the world. Let's take a quick break here, and we'll come back with David Ferris and talk about some of those, uh, those, those, well, those structural barriers, but also the procedural proposals that you are calling for that you say that uh, Democrats ought to call for. They're pretty radical, but you know what, David? I'm really glad to hear them. I'm really uh, happy to see Democrats pushed uh, to look beyond the horizon for a change, uh, to look at you know what may be possible instead of you know doing nothing but playing defensive. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back with David Ferris, author of the new book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Right on! Power to the people. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with David Ferris. He's a contributor at The Week. He's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago and the author of uh, the now-published new book, published this week. It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. Uh, David Ferris, uh, to be frank, after reading your uh, excerpt from the book uh, published at The Guardian, you know, if anyone else had proposed some of these ideas that you put forward in the article, uh, the the excerpt from your book, you know, I might have ignored it, uh, frankly, as someone who was out of their goddamn mind to propose such a thing. (laughs) 
Um, instead, you've been on the show many times. I know you, so I thought I'd invite you back onto the show to tell you directly that you are out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> but uh, let's talk. Let's talk about some of these ideas. In truth, you're not really out of your mind, and I'm I'm happy to see some of these big progressive ideas being put forward. I've long said Democrats need to run for something instead of just always against something. Uh, so let's start with some of these very radical ideas you detail. First, you're talking about structural uh, barriers and procedural changes that need to be made to our democracy itself. And you suggest the first thing that Democrats ought to do if they regain the House, the Senate and the White House is to grant statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. Why is that the first thing that you'd like to see them do, David? Well, for, for two reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. Um, these are all American citizens who are deprived completely of voting representation in Congress, um, which is outrageous. You know, there's a reason that the license plates in D.C. say taxation without representation. And it's, uh, again, it's just another affront to, I think, the, the spirit of small-D democracy, to have people who are all American citizens who do not get uh, voting representation in, in Congress. It's outrageous. The second reason is, is more partisan. Um, so if you look at the Senate, obviously the, the equal representation of the states in the Senate is written into the Constitution, um, actually with a special clause that says that states can't be deprived of it without their consent. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is not going anywhere. And if you look at the, the 50 states in the Senate, um, in, the, in the Union, Probably 29 or 30 of them uh, lean Republican, mm -hmm. and 20 or 21 of them lean Democratic. Right? That means in, a, in an average, like normal partisan year, where the president is not a complete maniac um, shredding American <laughs> constitutional democracy every other day with his Twitter account, the Republicans are going to have a structural advantage in the Senate, and Republicans are going to control the Senate more often than not, and that will put a real sort of block on the long-term growth of progressive power and progressive policy in this country. So if Puerto Rico and D.C. were states... Um, they would almost certainly send two Democratic senators um, to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we had done this a long time ago, um, we would have the Senate right now, right? The Trump administration would, would functionally be over. There would be no more court appointments. We wouldn't have to, like, lie awake at night um, mm -hmm. um, sending good thoughts about good health to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and it would just be a, it would just be a, huge, uh, a huge benefit to us to be able to conduct actual investigations uh, in, in the Senate of the president's many, many crimes, um, both in the present day and in the past. So it's, it's, it's hardball, but it also is a, it's an urgent moral problem uh, for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Um, and it also would be a huge benefit to, to Democrats as they seek to, to gain control of the Senate, not just every once in a while in a big blue partisan wave because the other team messed up so badly, but, but more normally, like we, we want to be on even footing in the Senate. And, and we really can't do that until we do something like this. And that would, and just to underscore, that was that would not require a change in the Constitution. This is basically something that could be voted on. Is it just the two houses of Congress and the, and the White House who has to approve this, or do the rest of the states uh, get a say in this? No, it's just a simple act of Congress, um, so, you know, signed by the president, obviously. Um, mm. There would be probably a, a, a minor constitutional challenge to, to Washington, D.C. statehood because the, the Constitution calls for a, for a capital district. Um, but uh, there's a, the D.C. statehood people have a very easy workaround for that, um, which is that you, you, know, you exclude the, like, you know, the Capitol building and the Supreme Court from the actual state of mm. Washington, D.C., and that gets around that, that, that really minor constitutional problem. Gotcha. So, uh, so ultimately, this is, um, this is a day one thing. You know, um, both, both of these places have held referenda. 
to, to join the union. I think Puerto Rico probably needs to have another one, and that's a kind of a long, complicated story. But I think that they would probably vote to join the union, particularly after what has transpired in the last six months uh, in terms of their marginalization in American public life. Um, so again, yeah, day one, act of Congress, signed wow. by the president, boom, boom, it's day, done. Day one. Uh, now, similarly, you call for, and so it, actually D.C. and uh, Puerto Rico statehood is not all that radical. We've heard calls for that for, for years, but uh, you also call for breaking up my state of California, <laughs> not into merely two regions, uh, north and south, as, as others have called for over the years, but you actually call for breaking up the state of California into seven states. Really? Seven states, David Ferris? Yeah, I mean, you could do three, you could do five, you could do seven, you could probably do ten. Um, I did some, it's really fun to draw maps. Um, I, I sort of like understand why the European colonialists had so much fun with this. Um, but uh, I, I drew a map of seven states, uh, all of which would have voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton. Because uh, like every day that the sun shines in your state, Brad, it mm-hmm. is the most liberal day in the history of California. Uh, Hillary Clinton <laughs> carried the state by 30 points. Uh, right. she, won Orange, uh, she won Orange County the first person to carry uh, Orange County since uh, FDR in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is possible to envision um, drawing the lines such that you'd have seven uh, very firmly Democratic or, or Democratic-leaning states that would probably send 12 to 14 Democratic senators to D.C. Now, I know that this, you know, I know how this might be received in California um, because people, you know, people identify as, as Californians and they're very proud of their state and its, and its accomplishments and its role in the, in the country. But I think if you look at it as, um, look at it like this, uh, California does not have as much power in American politics as it should, um, and that is due to the, the equal representation uh, of the states in the U.S. Senate. There are 38 million people in California, probably more, at the next census. There are 700,000 people in Wyoming, and they get mm-hmm. the same two senators. Yeah. Right? So your power in D.C. is dramatically lower um, than people in some of these rural states. Yep. And so... Breaking up the state would be a way of sort of increasing the aggregate amount of progressive power in this country and, and increasing the aggregate amount of progressive power in the Senate. And doing this really would bring Democrats up to parity um, in the Senate in terms of states that lean one way or the other. I mean, it wouldn't give us an overwhelming advantage, but it would, it would erase the structural deficit in the U.S. Senate if we broke up California. And uh, just to be clear, with uh, those 38 million people out here in California in just this one state alone, that that puts us, I think, California, if it was its own country, would be something like number six in the world as far as economies go. We are bigger than just the state alone, bigger than Canada, bigger than Australia. All right, want to hit some more of these. You cite the uh, theft, of course, of the Supreme Court by Republicans uh, who refused to hold a vote on uh, President Obama's nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court for a, a full year as reason for the Democrats in return uh, to begin packing both the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court itself. Now, this was packing the Supreme Court with a whole bunch of additional justices was proposed, as I uh, recall, under FDR. It didn't go well. Why would Amer- the American people be any more accepting of that now, I'm wondering? But uh, explain your thoughts for uh, packing both the judici- both the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court itself. Well, I mean, look at it this way. Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And presidential elections are when the American people, uh, in some way, you could think of it as expressing their desire for who they want to make appointments to the Supreme Court. So six uh, six out of the last seven times, uh, the American people have voted uh, to have a Democrat 
make the, those appointments to the Supreme Court. And so by all rights, both the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court should have overwhelming Democratic majorities right now, and they don't. Uh, and they don't because of a variety of injustices in our electoral system, um, most, most prominently the Electoral College. And Republicans have, have escalated these court wars over the years. Okay, they didn't invent the game of slow-rolling people's judiciary nominations mm-hmm. towards the end of a four-year term. Okay, they did not invent that game. Um, they just escalated it. And there are some accounts that, that suggest that Republicans between 2009 and 2013, when Democrats eliminated the, the filibuster for right. these picks, uh, they blocked more uh, uh, judicial nominations than had been ever blocked in the history of the United States. Okay. Um, so they took a, a sort of like low-level, sort of mutually understood tit-for-tat game of slowing down nominations towards the end of a presidency, and they escalated it to like DEFCON 5, you know. <laughs> um, and so that, that's why they had to, to get rid of the filibuster for those picks so that Obama could make some of them. Um, and then, as if that wasn't enough, um, they escalated another step further, and they stole a seat on the United States Supreme Court. So when people ask me, you know, is this an escalation? I say, how is it an escalation? Like, how is packing the court different from stealing the swing seat on the court? Mm. You know, it is the same thing. It mm-hmm. has the same result, which is you change the partisan balance and the partisan dynamics on the court. Um, so basically, nothing... so to be clear, what you'd be calling for in the case of the Supreme Court would be adding uh, a number of more justices, basically, under a Democratic uh, president, and then filling those until... The, uh, the, the the Democrats essentially have the majority on the Supreme Court? Yeah, you fill those seats with the most outrageous, like, 42-year-old liberal that you can find. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I, I, do, I do in the book offer a, a plan to, to, to cloak this or to offer an olive branch to the other side. Um, and that olive branch is a constitutional amendment uh, that would eliminate lifetime tenure on the court and that would routinize appointments to the Supreme Court, at least. There's a law... Um, proposed by an organization called Fix the Court in D.C. And what that law would do was it would give every president the right to, to two Supreme Court picks in every four-year term. Um, and the justices would be capped at 18-year terms. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, doing this, and I, uh, the Fix the Court folks don't suggest it, but I, I suggest extending that law to, to the entire federal judiciary. Um, and what that would do is it would instantly eliminate all of these like reckless partisan battles over the courts because both sides would then have uh, some certainty about the number of picks on the court that they get every time that they win the presidency. Mm. You know, and it's, it's part of a plan to, to really eliminate some of the ambiguity in constitutional provisions like, like advice and consent. What? Now, uh, that's going to be shot down on day one by the Republicans, right? right? But it's like, we offered you an, a, a way out. Like, we offered you a way out, um, and you said no, and so this is what we're going to do now. So, so the suggestion would be to uh, amend the Constitution for this different structure, and if you don't, we're going to go ahead and vote to pack the courts, to pack the Supreme Court, and I guess the federal judiciary? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, if we don't do this, um, the other side is going to do it. There are, there are a small handful of traditionalists left in the Republican caucus in the Senate who would not do this right now. Um, I think that those people will be gone within 48 years. Four, four to eight, not 48. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think the next time a more radicalized Republican caucus is in control of the Senate and the presidency and, and the House, you're going to see stuff like this because it's already lurking in the, in the right-wing judicial uh, sphere. There was an article last year by a, a guy named Steve Calabrese, who's one of the original sort of leading lights of the, uh, the originalist mm-hmm. movement. And he suggested doing the exact same thing that I'm, I'm saying. He published this in a law journal um, saying that Republicans should pack the courts 
um, and particularly radically expand the federal judiciary, as he says, to reverse uh, the, the Obama judicial legacy. Um, this stuff is floating around the right wing. They're talking about uh, doing away with judicial review altogether. They're talking about things like uh, jurisdiction stripping, and that would be where Congress would pass a law that says, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have uh, the right to say anything about abortion rights anymore. Stuff like this, you know. So there's much more radical stuff coming down the pike towards us, and and I, I believe that that's happening because if you look at the way that, that the National Republican Party is responding to what the Trump administration is doing in a variety of ways that are not just violations of norms, but they are violations of the Constitution. And they are lying down, and they are letting it happen without lifting a finger. And so I am absolutely certain that if we don't escalate the court wars ourselves, uh, it will be done to us. And we, we do have a way out. Uh, there is a, you know, uh, there's a place to meet in the middle with the other team if they want to. And if they don't, um, that's fine, and we should use the powers that are very clearly granted to us by the Constitution to pack the courts, because the, court, the Constitution doesn't say anything about the size of these courts. It really doesn't say very much about the courts at all, actually. <laughs> and, and well, th- there you go. I told you he was a radical. I'm speaking with David Ferris, uh, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty. All right, you also, uh, David, uh, say that uh, progressives should also get behind a change in how we elect our representatives to the House, to the U.S. House itself and should enact proportional representation reforms that would not only eliminate a grotesque chicanery of, uh, of gerrymandering, but also make it possible for smaller parties to finally win a seat at the governing table. This is something that uh, progressives and uh, third parties, uh, green parties, libertarians, etc., have been calling for for quite a while. Explain how that would work as you see it. Sure. So there is actually a piece of legislation before, before Congress right now that has a sponsor, Don Beyer, um, and it's called the Fair Representation Act, um, and it was designed uh, by an organization called Fair Vote, um, which is in Maryland, just out mm-hmm. of, outside of D.C. So to, to make it as simple as I can, because it's kind of complicated, yep. um, instead of 435... That's why I wanted districts, you to explain it instead of me, yeah, but yeah, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> Good luck. So, so right now we run 435 separate single-winner elections for the House of Representatives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're all separate. Um, mm-hmm. Each of those districts produces one congressperson, mm-hmm. Uh, and that person is sent to D.C., it can be a plurality of the vote. You know, you win 40% in a three-way race, then you win, you go to D.C. So what the Fair Representation Act would do um, is it would create three-member districts or five-member districts instead of single-member districts, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you would be walking into the voting booth and voting for multiple people to send to Congress out of your district. Um, in fact, if I have my way, it would be five-member districts or ten-member districts because I want to double the size of the House. So in each in um, each district itself, instead of one representative, you'd be voting for, well, you'd, you'd end up with three or four or five members going to Congress? Uh, yes, exactly. That wouldn't double. Um, that wouldn't double the size of Congress. That would quadruple the size of Congress if you had five, wouldn't it? No. So what you're doing is you're taking the existing districts and you're combining them um, ah. into three-person or five-person districts. Uh-huh. So under the, the fair vote plan is the same 435-member Congress. Um, okay. It's just larger districts instead of single-member districts. Um, and the way that they, the way that you would vote for the for the members of Congress is something called ranked choice voting. So in our elections, this is in political science, it's called the single transferable vote. But I don't like to use that term because it doesn't really make any intrinsic sense to people. Um, but in ranked choice voting, I think it does. So when you walk into the booth, you will be presented with a, a menu. Each party, and let's say that we're in a five-member district, mm-hmm. um, each party would nominate five candidates. And you, you might have five Green Party candidates, five Libertarians, uh, five Democrats, five Republicans. You then get to vote in the, in the you, you walk into the voting booth and you rank the candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it, one thing it allows you to do is it allows you to vote your heart with your first choice. 
So if you were like, man, I'd really love to vote for a, a Green Party candidate or a Libertarian, but I know they're not going to win, so I'm not going to do it, kind of the strategic voting thing, mm-hmm. you can now vote for that person first. And what happens if, is uh, if that person is eliminated, and this is a sort of mathematical equation for how to do this, but if your first choice candidate is elected, they don't throw your ballot away. They take your ballot and they're like, who did you vote for second? And then they redistribute your ballot to that person. Does that make sense? Uh, um, it actually, it, it, um, it makes sense because I understand how it works. In truth, it's absolutely a nightmare, ranked choice voting is. <laughs> and I've been going up against the, the fair vote folks for, uh, for many years about it. And so uh, because it is so complicated, let me just say, let me just, because I am nothing if not uh, someone reaching out, trying to find compromises here, rather than <laughs> ranked choice voting, which is wildly uh, complicated. Uh, the math is very difficult. You have to centrally count all votes. You can't do counting at the precinct. Let me just toss out, uh, and folks can look it up on Wikipedia if they like. There's uh, an alternative to that called approval voting, where basically you just you're you're voting yes no for any no. You 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 can vote for as many candidates as you want essentially, and that sort of takes out the spoiler idea. You know, people don't want to vote for the the green candidate because it might take away from the. Uh, the Democratic candidate, whatever. Now you could vote for the Green candidate and the Democratic candidate, and whoever uh, wins the most votes essentially uh, wins. That can be hand-counted. That can be counted at the precincts without confusing the hell out of uh, uh, out of voters and candidates alike. So just going to toss that into your, uh, into your brain there, David, <laughs> even though you probably already talked about ranked choice specifically in your book. I'd go for approval. That's okay. I mean, I think the I think the the underlying point is that the system as we have it right now mm-hmm. is not working. It's not working for Democrats. It's not working for the country. Yeah. Um, and so I think we could have a really robust debate about about exactly what the procedures should be for the House, and we might we might not see eye to eye on exactly the the, mm-hmm. the right system. But I think that we can agree that the system that we have is terrible. To give you two examples, in 2012, Democrats actually won more votes for the House of Representatives if you tally them all up, mm-hmm. and yet they had a 30-something seat disadvantage um, because of the because of the district system. Uh, in 2016, um, Republicans won the National House vote by one point. Um, you know they have this uh, whatever it is, 45-seat majority in the mm-hmm. House of Representatives. That's not good. You know, as as David Daly says, uh, America is the only country in the world that that allows politicians to pick their own voters yep. by by drawing these district lines. So whatever the reform is. Um, it really has to strike at the heart of the single-member district system itself um, and, and eliminate this gerrymandering. Because the reality is we can't actually reverse gerrymander uh, to the Republicans exactly as they did it to us because of the way that Democrats are concentrated in the cities. Um, it just would be almost impossible um, to, to kind of to flip the script here and do the same thing to them that they did to us. So I think that we need to, we need to kind of think um, more broadly, more strategically, you know, get our best thinkers about electoral systems together and, and come up with a plan because the, the district system is also not in the Constitution um, and it could be dispensed with, with a simple act of Congress. The states themselves could decide to alter their electoral procedures. You know, they could do proportional representation. Um, they could probably alter, I think there's some constitutional problems with this. They could use the German system, which is like a mixture of proportional representation and district. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is we, got it, we have to think bigger because we have a, we also, in the same way, not in the same way, but in a similar way to how we have the structural uh, deficit in the Senate, we have a structural deficit in the House. Um, that is, a, you know, in a normal year, with, even if you had nonpartisan d- uh, district drawing commissions in every state, I think Democrats would be at a disadvantage um, just given where they live right now. Mm. You know, um, and so what, what, if, you, if you take nothing else away from the book, it's that what I really want Democrats to do 
is to use the power that they have the next time um, they're in D.C. to fix some of these problems, because most of them uh, are either not in the Constitution or there are nice workarounds um, to get around the problem. I've, I've got uh, just a minute or two here, uh, David. There's a couple of points I wanted to, uh, to ask you about. And, and by the way, sure. yeah. The, the the debate and the disagreement is why I wanted to have you on, because we need to be debating and disagreeing about these ideas. We need to be talking about them. We're not really talking about them at all on the progressive side. Uh, at least, you know, not, not the Democrats are not talking about them as a, a as a party issue. And one of the reasons is, uh, I think, is because they fear that some of these notions will energize uh, their opposition, or at least that's what they say. And, you know, I'm tired of them campaigning and governing defensively, but isn't there something to the charge that these proposals, proposals like this, is going to activate a huge uh, backlash among the right? Some of these ideas will, uh, they will argue, I suspect, the Democrats, the establishment Democrats will argue that this is going to activate Republicans to come out and vote against these ideas. How, what do you say to that criticism, Dave? Well, you know, what I would say is um, we didn't need radical ideas to generate a, a pretty insane Republican response to the last Democratic president. You know, so you, you had a Democratic president who basically implemented, like, Mitt Romney's health care plan, uh, and people went, people went bananas, right? Like, the right mobilized uh, as if we were trying to impose fascism on America. So the reality is the right is going to counter-mobilize the next time we're in power, no matter what we do. Like, we could get to D.C. and literally do nothing, just sit on our hands. Um, and you'd have you'd have these right wing forces organizing uh, and, and using outrageous rhetoric to, to delegitimize us. It does, you know, so frankly, I think that no matter what we do, we're going to have to deal with uh, with a counter mobilization. Um, and the other thing is, like you know, um, I just don't think that we can continue um, to sort of absorb these escalations in partisan warfare without responding in kind, because one of the things it does is it sends a message to Republicans that, like, we're the party committed to, to decency and, and norms and trust and cooperation and bipartisanship, um, and you can do whatever you want to us. It doesn't matter, because we're going to come right back next year and try to pass a bipartisan bill or a bipartisan budget, or we're going to reach across the aisle. Or, like, Obama invited all these, like, right-wing opinion writers into the White House, the, you know, shortly after he was elected, and everybody just rejected him, you know? And so I think what the right thinks right now um, is that they can push the boundaries of the constitutional order without consequence, because the Democrats will, will sort of lie down and take it. And I think, one, it would be really instructive, and it would be really useful for Republicans to see what it feels like um, to have the, uh, have, have the opposition sort of use the same, uh, some of the same uh, uh, sort of hinges in, in, the, in the political framework to press their agenda pretty ruthlessly, you know, to violate yeah. some of these uh, sort of informal understandings. And at that point, Maybe, maybe we can then sit down and, and start dialing these temperatures down. But I don't think that it's going to work to come back into power and play business as usual, because the Republicans are going to obstruct just like they did in, in 2009 to 2016. Uh, they're going to be worse because the Republican caucus has gotten more radical uh, over the last 10 years rather than less radical. So the reality is it's coming at us. You know, they're going to they're going to counter mobilize no matter what we do. Yeah. Um, and I think that we need to be pretty ruthless about it. The, uh, step one in bringing this vision to fruition is to stop bringing pistols to the nuclear war, writes David Ferris. Doing so will require party leaders to pursue policy changes that will be ridiculed by their opponents as outrageous affronts to democratic decency and received by their own voters with some puzzlement or even shock. 
They need to do it anyway, David argues. The shock will wear off. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Dave Daly, who's uh, also been a frequent guest on the show over, over the years, has a book about uh, gerrymandering with a title that I can't say on air. But he says, <laughs> David Ferris, about your book, there are more of us than there are of them, so let's fight like it. Resist Trump and embolden the Democrats. It's time to fight dirty is our roadmap to a fairer democracy and an America we want to live in. If we listen to David Ferris, it's a fight we can win, says David Daly. Uh, David, always great to talk to you, my friend. Congrats on the new book. We'll point folks uh, to, to the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, how Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. I'll also point folks to your uh, to your column at theweek.com and to uh, to you directly on the Twitter so they can raise hell with you instead of me at <laughs> David M. Ferris. Thanks, my friend. Always great to have you here, David. It's always a pleasure to be on the show, Brad. Thanks and uh, look forward to next time. It will be soon. All right, uh, quick break. You feeling any uh, less dirty, Desi Doyen? <laughs> yes, that helped a lot. Well, don't get used to it. We'll dive back into the swamp for a few minutes after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. Sorry, this is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We'll dive back momentarily into the swamp in our closing few minutes. Actually, we'll dive back into our... Des, what are they called? The coal ash pits? Yeah, the coal ash waste pits. Let's uh, dive into the toxic coal ash waste pits. You had uh, spoken, you had reported on our latest Green News report about this guy, Andrew Wheeler. Yep. Who the uh, Senate was getting ready to confirm potentially to be the second in charge at the EPA. And the Democrats were trying to stop. Well, the Senate uh, has now confirmed a former coal industry lobbyist as the second highest official at the Environmental Protection Agency. That puts him in line to run the agency if embattled administrator Scott Pruitt is forced out or if he resigns. Senators approved Andrew Wheeler uh, on Thursday night as the agency's deputy administrator, despite complaints from Democrats that Wheeler helped lead a fight by the coal industry to block regulations that protect Americans' health and begin to address climate change. AP reports the Senate confirmed Wheeler 53 to 45 with three Democrats, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, joining with Republicans to support Wheeler. Yep, coal states, they have a lot of power. Until his nomination Trump uh, late, by Trump late last fall, Wheeler had worked as a lobbyist with a client list including Murray Energy, uh, one of the largest coal mining companies in the nation. 
which is run by the crazy guy uh, Robert Murray, the CEO. Uh, he Wheeler also accompanied Murray during a series of closed-door meetings to lobby the Trump administration to kill environmental regulations affecting coal mines. So this is not a guy who was just, you know, a few years ago, a coal lobbyist or even, you know, before Donald Trump took office. This guy has been a lobbyist while Trump was in office. Yeah. Was lobbying the administration. Yep. While he was in office. So he was in there with with Murray uh, trying to get the uh, Trump administration to kill regulations that affect coal mines. Well, now it'll be a lot easier as second in command of the EPA. Oh, sure. You know, this is complete and total regulatory capture, capture. by an yep. industry of a public health agency. Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, says uh, Wheeler's coal credentials are without equal. He is without question a member of the coal industry's Hall of Fame. Republicans countered that Wheeler is well qualified to lead the agency, having worked at the EPA early in his career uh, and serving as the Republican staff chief of the Senate Environment Committee before becoming a lobbyist nine years ago. Uh, the EPA itself took to Twitter. This was kind of amazing today uh, to to tweet. The Senate does its duty. Andrew Wheeler confirmed by Senate as deputy administrator of EPA. The Democrats couldn't block the confirmation of environmental policy expert and former EPA staffer under both a Republican and a Democrat president. Democrat president. Yes. Notice they said. It seems the EPA forgot to mention that Wheeler was a uh, big-time coal industry lobbyist. Now Just, that he's, you know, six months ago. Right. That's his background. And, and the fact that the EPA is using the uh, their Twitter account, their, their official, official account, Twitter for such a partisan, uh, uh, clearly a partisan tweet, is <sighs> similarly appalling. It, uh, Democratic uh, Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico said the problem with the Wheeler nomination now is that if Pruitt goes tomorrow, Wheeler will, in fact, become the administrator. Yeah. That's a big problem. That's a huge problem. Uh, who's worse, Wheeler or Pruitt? Uh, does it make a difference? No, actually, it doesn't. <laughs> However, I would say that Wheeler is better for the coal industry because he knows way more about the ins and outs of coal regulation than Pruitt does. Pruitt seems to be more interested in his own personal aggrandizement. Mm, so That's true. He's also Wheeler, we should note, is a, uh, well, what do they call him? AP calls him uh, expressed public skepticism about the consensus of climate scientists. Oh, you mean he's a denier? Yes, he's a climate science denier. Uh, environmental groups uh, said the combination of Pruitt and Wheeler could have devastating uh, impact on the environment. Ken Cook of the Environmental Working Group says before the Trump administration, it would have been inconceivable that a coal and chemical industry lobbyist with a long history of hostility toward environmental policy would be the number two at EPA. But yeah, there was one person who said, you wouldn't put a tobacco lobbyist as head of the CDC. This is the same thing. Boy, I hope Donald Trump doesn't listen to this program because <laughs> you just gave him a fantastic oh, idea. <laughs> All right, one more story from the swamp today before we get out. A major donor with close ties to the White House has resigned on Friday as deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee after the revelation that he had agreed to pay $1.6 million to a former Playboy model who became pregnant 
during an affair that they had. This deal, as it turns out, was arranged by President Donald Trump's own personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Under the terms of the deal, the Republican donor, Elliot Broidy, would uh, w- would pay the woman to stay silent about their relationship. In uh, this report that first came from the Wall Street Journal, the woman's lawyer, Keith Davidson, also represented two women who were paid during the presidential campaign for their silence about alleged affairs with Donald Trump himself. Former Playboy model Karen McDougal and uh, porn star Stormy Daniels. Brady apologized to his wife in a statement while acknowledging that he had this affair. He said that she alone, this woman, decided that she did not want to continue with the pregnancy. And I offered to help her financially during this difficult time. So hmm. it sounds like she had an abortion. Sounds this like is it. the uh, again, the deputy finance chair of the RNC who used Trump's lawyer for some odd reason, just by way of coincidence, used Trump's lawyer to make this deal with uh, this uh, Playboy uh, playmate, playmate and use the same aliases uh, reportedly in the contract that she made. David Dennison and Peggy Peterson, same alias aliases that were used with Stormy Daniels. Uh, by the way, he was a major fundraiser for George W. Bush. And in 2009, Broidy pleaded guilty to charges that he made nearly one million dollars worth of illegal gifts to New York state officials to win an investment of two hundred and fifty million dollars from the state's public pension fund. So he had already pleaded guilty all of that before he was put in charge of RNC finances under the Donald Trump regime, who, as you know, is busy draining the swamp. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer and take a shower. To uh, Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to author and professor David Ferris of Roosevelt University, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free at any time at bradblog.com. Find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. And my thanks as ever to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep going through this swamp. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.